listening to Love the Links Golf Radio with your hosts, Brendan Elliott and Bob Baldessari. All right, Love of the Links, we're back for the week of February, what is it, 24th, uh, 2020. Bobby, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. I was in Ohio for a few days with my mother-in-law's 90th celebration birthday. It was a little Very chilly, cool. 14 degrees. Very cool, literally. Okay. Very cool. <laughs> but how, how cool is it to to have relatives that, you know, get into their 90s? I had a great-grandmother that she was 102 when she passed away, but it, it's pretty cool, especially when they're still pretty sharp, like my great-grandmother was, to to have conversations with them. Oh, yeah. We spent quite a, yeah, quite a bit of time around, uh, Dottie is her name, Dottie's friends who were mid-80s to into the 90s, and uh, they're all very, very sharp. Um, it's neat to talk to them and uh, hear them hear things that they regretted doing or things they wish they did more. It's, it's just uh, it's kind of a reality check. It was, it was a great weekend. You know, I, I don't know at the various clubs you worked at, what, uh, what the demographics were with your members, what age group. But when I was at Winter Park, we, uh, I would say the average age was probably around 80 for the members. Uh, we had, we pre- had at least half a dozen that were in their late nineties and it, it was, a, you know, I was th- I spent 13 years there and really got some neat perspective on a lot of things. But what was always amazing to me is the guys, the Dawn Patrol, the first group that would come out every week, or excuse me, every day. Uh, and even this one gentleman, John McMillan, they all wore those white piff hats, the white helmets, and they would try to sneak out before seven o'clock and the superintendent would get mad if they got out before seven o'clock. But the same stories after after the round having coffee, it's cool. Uh, how about how about the clubs that you uh, worked at? Oh yeah, you know, classic uh, either in New England or or uh, Florida, private clubs. Uh, some of the gentlemen, and ladies, or yeah, they were definitely around a hundred. Um, it's one of the neat things about golf that they're still out there playing golf. They're playing golf on their terms, the yardages and how they do the rules. <laughs> um, yep. You see, it's a great uh, illumination of the game of golf with the social aspect more than anything. And they look forward to the next day and the next day to play and and hitting a few shots and getting out there. There was a gentleman when I was at Weston Golf Club in Massachusetts, I'll never forget, he came in the shop in April one year. He was uh, 84 years old. He had not played golf since he was about 20 or 21, he said. He had a small leather bag. It was filled with wooden shafted clubs the same clubs he had used 60 something <laughs> years before. And it was one of the neatest experiences ever in my golf career to help him get back into the game, literally get back. He said, I'm just getting back into the game. I'll never forget it. And it was, uh, it was a great experience. And he got out there and played golf on his terms. And we got him some of those old Dave Pell's feather light clubs. Um, I think we had a couple of wedges, a seven iron, maybe a hybrid or something at the time. And he had a ball. You just, uh, I'll never forget it. Yeah, it's uh, one, one of the things that was super interesting to me was the fact of the average age being 80 and the number of folks over 80. And it was what kept them going was the game, them being there. And, and to, to me, uh, it, it showed me a lot. Obviously, junior golf is kind of my thing, but when you look at the longevity of the sport and, and really, seeing that for the 13 years I spent there, I, it really speaks volumes to, to our sport and to our game. Oh yeah. It's one of the, 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 the neat things that sometimes you forget about that with the, the social aspect, you talk about it, but it is relationship building. And as you get older, many people have physical issues. They stay at home a lot. Yep. They, get, they get withdrawn from society. So simply the game of golf, looking forward to nine holes every week, something like that. Six mm-hmm. holes, three holes, I don't care what it is. Uh, just just the idea of getting out there with your friends. And, um, you know, I think it's uh, it's one of the beautiful things about the game is you can get a lot out of it as you get older. Yeah. Well, our, our guest tonight, um, we'll, we'll jump to him. I see you just jumped on. Hello, Dr. Bob. How are you, sir? Hey, Brendan. Hi, Bob. How are you? Hello, doing Dr. well, Bob. doing well. Uh, you know, it's just uh, the world of technology. I was just trying to figure everything out. 
and you had all the connections to me and I uh, finally figured it out. And that's why we have all the degrees behind my name. <laughs> that's right. I saw your, I saw your chat message and I was trying to figure out how to get to you, but then you popped on. I was like, Oh, good. We're there. Oh, no, we're good. We're good. It's great to see you both. You're both looking great. Uh, Thank you. The 2020. I know we're right in the middle of it now. So uh, it's great to be here on the show. Yeah, we appreciate you coming on because, you know, for the for the first five episodes we've done this year, the the topic that you're an expert in has come up every show just about. And we and we whether it's we're focusing on the the PGA Tour, the LPGA Tour, or junior golfers, which which Bob and I have a great passion for helping them. This is and it's it's an old adage. People say it all the time, but this is from a mental standpoint, one of the toughest games in the world, is it not? Oh, absolutely. And I can tell you for a fact that I have been with some great, great Hall of Fame players. I mean, people like Dan Marino and Michael Jordan and Michael Schmidt, you know, of baseball, Charles Barkley. And each one of them tells me that golf is you know, by far the toughest sport because there's no nowhere to hide. And you really can't depend on any of your teammates. And I remember asking Dan Marino one time years ago, I said, what is it about you know, football and golf that's different? He says, in football, I can throw a wounded duck, all right? He goes, my receivers make me look good. And he goes, if I hit a ball, you know, out of bounds, he goes, there's no recovery there. It's just like throwing a ball, you know, out, you know, out of bounds. And I think it's like Ted Williams said to Sam Snead, Ted Williams was talking about hitting a 95 mile per hour fastball. And he said, you only have four fifths of a second, two fifths of a second to actually see it, two fifths of a second to respond. And he said, that's the hardest task in the world. And Sam Snead said, no, Ted, hitting a golf ball is. And, and then Ted, you know, just sort of became very profane with Sam because they were filming this commercial for <laughs> right. Sears and Roebuck years ago. And he said, what the hell are you saying? He goes, no, he goes, uh, Ted, hitting a golf ball. He says, well, a golf ball's just sitting on a tee. It's not going anywhere. He said, but Ted, we have to play our foul balls. And I think that's yeah. exactly, you know, really, it was just the greatest of the greats. So uh, the slam and Sam, you know, kind of got the final word on, you know, the great Ted Williams. You know, it's interesting you brought up some non-golfers, some other athletes, because I know Bob, uh, when we were talking a couple episodes ago, we were talking about the Pebble Beach Pro-Am and, and Bob, why don't you, why don't you roll with this? You had uh, some thoughts about uh, some of the ex NFL players or baseball players, hockey players. One, I think you had a question for Dr. Bob. Yeah, Dr. Bob, it, it occurred to me in the last group on the last day, I believe it was Phil Mickelson was playing with um, Jeez, uh, I'm totally uh, – the 49ers uh, quarterback after Montana, Steve Young. Oh, yeah. And, and so I thought, here's Steve Young, Hall of Famer, played in the Super Bowl, winning drives, last seconds of NFL game, the whole thing. But yet he's – like you talked about, he's now in an element. All the eyes are on him. He's out there as an individual. Granted, they're playing a two-person type of team. But I just thought, I wonder how what, what's running through Steve Young's head while he's out there in that environment. And if he draws on his – football experiences to help them get through that? Well, I think everybody has their basic fundamentals. And much like the jazz musician, Miles Davis said years ago, it says, it takes a long time to learn how to play like yourself. And so when I hear Steve Young, I hear Eli uh, Manning, Peyton Manning out there, you know, playing there at Pebble Beach, and they love the game and they're very competitive. But when they get into their domain, they have a zone of control. A PGA, LPGA professional, even our junior players, when they get inside the ropes, what they have to understand is this is the zone. It's the zone of personal control. And I think that's really what happens when you have a Steve Young who can actually draw on so many positive experiences playing in front of a lot of people. The one thing that's different though, he's not as competent and I mean physically competent, maybe as he is of throwing a football or running an option play. Uh, he's not as competent with that wedge shot or trying to hit that 270-yard draw in the 18th hole at Pebble Beach. So they have to sort of draw on 
well, this is the best that I can do and, uh, and kind of go from there. And that's really what everybody has to do. They have to learn how to play their own game. And that's really one of the big cliches that is the golden secret to golf, learning how to play your game one shot at a time. Yeah, I had, and, you know, another question. I was wondering, are we using the proper term when we talk about the mental game, quote unquote, is it more the attitude game? Is it, you know, you just, it's easy to throw around these uh, terms and oh, I got to work on my mental game. I mean, is that really the right phrase we should use? It's, it's very, it's almost a, a partial understanding. When we start talking about golf, and I remember saying this years ago in one of my books, The Ten Commandments of Mind Power Golf. I thought I was very smart. And somebody asked me, is golf physical or is it mental? And I said, it's 100% physical. It's 100% mental. It's 100% emotional. And it's 100% compartmental. And people say, wow, that's a lot of percentages there, Dr. Bond. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is it's totally integrated. How do you separate one from the other? Because action follows thought. But if your head isn't in the right place, the body really cannot follow. So it is a total synchronization, a whole a synchrony of a lot of moving parts there. But when we talk about the mental game, for me, it's mental, it's emotional, it's neurophysiological. It's, it's just a lot more than thinking positive thoughts. Everybody wants to sort of keep it so simple and dumb it down. But really, when it comes back to it, every major mistake that we make on the golf course was first precipitated by some mental or emotional error. And we actually see the physical outlay. We see the physical breakdown in that performance. But we first break down here between the ears and perhaps, you know, in the guttural region. That's where we break down first. Yeah, and two, two of the concepts that you touch on quite a bit, uh, I've watched quite a few of your videos and read some of your stuff, is the concepts of fear and expectations. And with my juniors, that, that is the one thing that keeps a lot of these kids from getting to that next level. The fear, and the fears, are, they vary between kid to kid, uh, but really at, from an expectation level, and it's all personal expectations. I think they have it in their mind that mom or dad are expecting this of me. My coach is expecting this of me. And what I tell my kids all the time, and hopefully you can expand on this uh, for me, is the only expectations are the ones you put on yourself. And you have to trust what we're working on on the range and try to come up with a way to stay in the now when you move on to the golf course. Well, I think, you know, you're absolutely right, Brendan and Bob, you are both, you know, pundits in the field. And I've been, I started in junior golf 35 years ago. I started all the Nike golf schools across America. Uh, and I've been with David Ledbetter and the Ledbetter Golf Academy for the last 20 years. So we're all very familiar with this, with the expectations, but I always talk about the 99 percenters, versus the one percenters. And the 99 percenters are all these juniors and they're still the college players and still the tour players. The first thing they come in and ask you, they don't say, hey, Brendan, Bob, did you guys stay emotionally steady out there today? Did you have a great time today? They don't ask that. The first thing they ask is, what'd you shoot? What'd you score? And no one really cares what you really shot. And the only reason they're asking you that is that they're comparing themselves yep. to you. And so what I'm trying to help people understand, being a one percenter means is that we look at the word fear. I'm big on acronyms, F-E-A-R. The 99 percenters, all these kids are focusing everything around results or they focus on expectations and results. That's where their fear comes from. And what I'm trying to do with the one percenters is use that same acronym use that fear, use that energy and turn it around. Instead of focusing on expectations, we're going to focus on execution and then we will accept the result. So the execution is this is what, you know, Bobby or Susie can do. This is all under your control. And if you actually do this and execute this to the very best that you can at this particular moment in this specific situation, everything will come out okay. And if it doesn't, at least you had your mind in the right place to play your game and not playing to the expectations of others 
or the expectations of coach, the expectations of mom or dad. And this whole notion about having personal expectations, that's really where pressure is. Mm -hmm. Because pressure is a value that we put on ourselves when we really think something's really important. And the more value we put on that importance, like, oh, I have to shoot a certain score, or I've got to make the cut, or I've got to make this flight, or I have to beat this person, that value turns into an internal pressure. So what I'm always trying to do is let's let go of these preset standards of, expect, of, of, of uh, expectations, and let's get into focusing on what you can control, and that is executing your process at this moment in time. Easier to talk about, tougher okay. to do, but it is trainable and it is doable. And that's why we talk about mental discipline. And that's yep. what I do. If that makes any sense to you guys. Absolutely. hundred percent. Oh yeah. The, uh, you know, so many thoughts running through my head. I, I cringe <laughs> so many times I've played in pro-ams, pro-members. Um, I'm new to the golf course and members have played there for 20 years. You get on the tee and immediately go, Bob, don't hit it right because of the trees and don't hit it left because of the out of bounds now don't do this don't do that and i stop 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 <laughs> you know it's so interesting how the amateur golfer thinks about that instead of maybe pick the you know classic pick a target get your routine going uh, another thing is uh in the scramble especially in the scramble at times uh, or just even when you're playing and you hear somebody say come on bob knock it in knock it in <laughs> and i go they got no shot <laughs> but I always love, you know, playing in the scramble, being, you know, a, a touring professional and being, you know, a, a professional myself. I always love it when you have your amateur saying, well, listen, we've got enough pars, so don't leave this thing short, okay? And so you step up there and you leave it short. And they go, well, damn it, you left the thing short. We told you not to leave it short, but I'm only trying to putt it the way I see it, right? So, and then that's the great thing about being professional is that when you do a great job and you play great, and we, hey, it's a team effort. We're doing great. But then I'm just not trying to get it in anybody. But when you don't play well or you have an average day, what happened? Well, I pro didn't help us a bit there. <laughs> so it, it kind of gets us. But to me, the biggest thing for me, and, and we start talking about you know, what's really important in the game, and really it's the chicken or the egg. What comes first, the great golf or the enjoyment and the satisfaction? And to me, you have to go out with a very simple uh, philosophy that says, I can play today. This is my game. It's my dime. It's my time. And I'm going to actually give myself permission to play as great as I can, because we've got two different roads we can choose as golfers. We can choose the road that says, this is how I want to play. I choose to play great or allow myself to play great. And the other road where everybody takes it, and it's, boy, I hope I don't screw up. I'm going to play to avoid making mistakes. Mm -hmm. I'm going to play to avoid failure. So when I can get players to actually play to play great, take the blinders off, give yourself permission to enjoy, you know, the game that you love. Now, now we're really cooking with gas. Now we're really doing something that's fun for everybody. So, Bob, if you could, I'm curious, walk me through the process. Somebody comes to you for the first time. Um, whether it be a, a junior golfer or a tour player, one, is the process kind of the same? Uh, how, how does that all work? Well, I work, you know, Brendan and Bob on the human being model. So when people come in to see Dr. Bob Winters, they see me in a lot of different places. They see me as drbobwinters.com or theconfidencedoctor.com or davidledbetter.com. So they come in and see me. And the first thing I sit down, I start asking them questions like, what is it that you want? What is it that you expect? What do you want out of today? And also, I ask them this very basic question, are you good <laughs> in relation to your golf? And it's almost like an elementary school question because what I'm asking them is, I want them to tell me what they really feel you know, about their talent level. Do they really believe in their talent? Now, if there's a new golfer, I mean, a novice, uh, you know, obviously I don't ask that question. But what we do, we actually create a personal playing philosophy. We find out what they think about when they're playing well. We find out, you know, what derails them. And then I ask them, what would be this ultimate warrior mindset that you want to have? 
And then we talk about all the success they have. And then we talk about, you know, can you replicate that? Can you create and can I help you create a custom tailored program for you, Bob, or you, Brendan? And so we actually just start right from there. We start right from scratch. We sit down and we actually start, you know, just, you know, cutting things open, just kind of like dissecting the patient and just sort of let everything come out. And, and what we're trying to do is really peel the layers of the onion away so I can get to the emotional and the psychological core. What is it that you really want from today? And, and that's, how we, that's how we work. And I've been doing it now for a long time. And, you know, we were thinking about how I got started in this business. I got started because I was playing competitive golf, wanted to play on the PGA Tour. And I've been fortunate enough, you know, to play at every level in golf. I played in college, Division One, and went on, you know, the PJQ school and just, and then I got into sports vision, sports psychology, and was there at the University of Virginia with Bob Rotella for many, many years as an assistant coach there. And then, you know, I, I linked up with David Ledbetter. And so it's just all been a fabulous journey about, you know, learning, you know, how the mind really, you know, takes over and it's the mind-body connection. But it isn't just one thing. I mean, it's a cornucopia of a lot of things. And like we've talked about, when I work with a player, it's, it's just fascinating. Every day, every student is different. And that's really, you know, when they come to me, uh, I'm not one of these guys that kind of sits back. I, I'm pretty passionate about what I do. I love what I do. Every day is really exciting for me. And, and the most gratifying thing at the end of the day, end of the year, maybe even the decade, when people come back to me and say, the stuff that I learned from you, I'm still using to this day. And I have a lot of players on tour who still have some of those original sheets when they came into that first session with me. And we talked about, are you good? Yes. And I believe that. Because that's the thing, when you step up on the tee, for a junior, for a college player, amateur player, anyone, do you believe in your talent? Do you believe good things are going to happen? Because if you don't believe good things will happen, you're already, you know, 10 steps behind the eight ball right there. Is that the differentiator between a tour player that is just on tour and a tour player that wins? Well, I think, you know, when you start talking about winning, uh, now you have to realize that, you know, when people go out to play, who have been the most successful people in golf? And I've had a chance to work, you know, with all the different major champions over the years. And the one thing that always comes to mind with me, and I'm always telling them this, is that the difference between the people that want to win and the people that do win is that the people put so much value on, I have to win this major championship. I've got to win this major championship. And they put this thing on a pedestal. And the people that go and play golf, and really have the mental discipline and the emotional composure to say, it's golf. Let's play golf. Let's beat the golf course. Winning tends to, you know, win them. And one of my players who you hear a lot from, and I, I did a lot of work with him, you know, several years ago, but in his developing junior years, his college years, is Brooks Kepka. Because when you hear Brooks talk, Brooks has sort of this um, – healthy chip on his shoulder where he says, I, I don't really care about anybody else. You know, I'm going to play my game. I'm going to play the way I do it. But if you take a look at Jack Nicklaus, if you take a look at Tiger Woods, you take a look uh, at Kathy Whitworth, you take a look at Annika Sorenstam, what did they do? They went out and just played golf. And Chi-Chi Rodriguez, you know, the great Puerto Rican golfer, Chi-Chi told me one time, he said, Jack Nicklaus was the smartest golfer I ever played with. And I said, why? He said, because Jack was smart enough to play dumb, meaning he knew exactly what he was going to do. But it was time for him just to go play golf. He just turned it off. He had that, you know, that capacity. And, and that's just a great, great metaphor for really what we're talking about. The great, great players, the ones that win, they play golf. The others are playing the game of I have to win. I want to win. I need to win a major. And they're putting so many expectations, so much value on it that they get in their way. And that works for every level of competition. Juniors, 
You know, juniors are looking around. They're sort of sniffing around. Who's here? Oh, she's the state champ. I don't know if I could beat her. I don't really like these guys. And you get into the college level where you say, well, here's the Florida Gators against the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. Uh, we want to beat them. you got to get rid of all that stuff because the true opponent isn't yourself. It isn't other people. It's the game itself. It's the golf course you're going to play. And if you can go out and play your game, and just play the way you want to and give yourself permission. This, this notion of emotional freedom, I've been talking about this for about 35, 40 years. Giving yourself emotional freedom to just play the game and really have fun finding out how good you can be without all this personal and social evaluation about what others think about your game. That gives you a real performance edge. So, I'm sorry to okay. go off there on this diatribe, but I do. But it's just, it's just the way I feel, and I just, I think it oozes with, without, within me and without me, and uh, continues within all of my students that I work with, because it's just a philosophy. To me, we can talk about all the X's and O's and strategies and techniques, but to me, it still comes to having this basic philosophy. This is what I believe to be true, and I think the Nicholases, the Palmers. And, you know, the, the Ballesteros, uh, the Whitworths, the Mickey Rice, everybody has this playing philosophy that worked for them. And for those, those top, so if you start to think about Hall of Famers in any sport, you think of the physical side, but they're all great minds, just really, really strong mental approach. Um, sometimes they talk about they, they get in the zone more often, maybe, or whatever that means. I mean, I think we've all rounds and you don't think about much and just like you said emotional freedom um, I was wondering too about sometimes you see kids and, and Brent and I've been around a lot of the youth golfers and I've used the phrase uh, they don't have any skeletons in the closet <laughs> uh, there is a, quite a bit of emotional freedom to just look point oh hit it there boom go yeah, and Bob, you're exactly right. There's not any emotional scar tissue there. There's not any negative memories. The one thing we know in neuropsychology is that bad is stronger than the good. I mean, that's the whole point. I just gave a, an Instagram video today about the power of our thoughts. We have about 66,000 thoughts, the average human, a day. And about two-thirds of those thoughts are negative thoughts thoughts that hold us back, self-limiting thoughts. And you have to ask yourself, what are you listening to? Are you listening to the bad stuff? Or are you going to actually pay attention and choose to listen to the good stuff? And I think that's exactly really what the good players do. They just filter all of, out of the bad stuff and separate the wheat from the shaft. And they say, this is how I do it. This is how I believe I need to do it. And I go out and do it. And I think sometimes what happens with players and really the very best players, is that they become pretty stubborn in their philosophy. This is, this is how I do it. And I remember, you know, hearing Lee Trevino, you know, talk about, you know, looking at Jack and looking at all these different people. And they said, would you have done it differently? He goes, no. He goes, I've, I've been up against Nicholas quite a few times. I've, I've had my share of victories. He goes, Jack did his thing. I did my thing. He goes, but Lee Buck Trevino could not play like the Golden Bear. He has to play like Lee Trevino. And I think that's the thing that we can help our juniors with, is that it's great to have role models. It's great to compare yourself to someone who you uh, admire and want to emulate. But in the end, let's develop your talent. Let's compare yourself to your potential, to your capabilities, and let's have a blast finding out how good you can be. That's really, you know, what I'm asking, you know, all of my players. Bob, I'm interested in getting your take on the correlation between the mental and the physical. And the example <laughs> I'm going to use is Tiger. With everything physically that he's been through, what is your opinion on the breakthrough that he had at the Tour Championship and then at the, at the Masters? How big of a deal is something like that for, for a player like that to overcome the physical and get the mental aspects back in line to where he was before. So let's get back to what we talked about, the fear. Uh, the fear that a Tiger Woods would have isn't the fear of failure or the fear of uh, abandonment or any of that fear of uh, embarrassing himself. 
It's the fear of inaccessibility. And you probably haven't heard that. It means I'm not able to access the talent pool that I know that I'm capable of. In fact, so many of us who have played the game at every level feel that. It's like, gosh. And people say, well, you played a great round today, Brendan. In your head, you go, but if you really knew how much better that round could have been. I saw it a couple of years ago when Tiger was, you know, he was given sort of the infamous title that he had the yip chips, okay, even from maybe a, a former coach of his. And he worked himself through it. And I saw him here a couple of years ago, about this time, at the Honda. And I saw him on the second or third hole where he had a tough, delicate pitch. And we all know that when it comes to that crunch time, we don't know, you know what this delicate shot or this very pressure shot is going to be. We don't know if it's going to be the final putt or it's going to be in the middle of the round. But he hit this delicate pitch shot. And he'd been really working on it. I mean, people don't know how hard some of these tour players work. I mean, the elite athletes, they work unbelievably hard, much harder than anyone else, you know, gives them credit for. When he hit that shot, and I saw the sort of the inner delight on Tiger. And I've known Tiger ever since 1994 when he played, you know, for Stanford. And I was coaching at the University of Virginia. And I saw him and I saw, you know, sort of that, yeah. I saw that he had like a little fist pump. He actually turned. And I said, right then, I said, that is sort of the turn where, you know, Tiger was sort of making his move forward. For him to actually come back from, you know, the 34 different surgeries and procedures that he has had to this date and time, it's huge for him to have won the Masters last year. Yeah, he had a little help from some other people, but he still went out and did it. That to me, was a masterful moment. And it's, I, I've always said that that last one he just won, the 15th, was probably harder for him than any of the other 14 before. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, people don't realize is that the fear of, do I really have it? You know, maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I may, might not win again. I mean, every tour player has that. They, you know, that's why they, they love to win. They relish winning. And that's why sometimes when a player wins on tour or wins in college or wins junior tournaments, they go through just a series of wins because they go, huh, was that all it was? I mean, I just did my thing. And it just seems like they get on a roll. But for Tiger to do that, yeah, that was pretty monumental. For him to overcome the physical, the mental, and I think, you know, of, of this state, it was a lot of emotional turmoil. I mean, all the things he, if you think about all the different things he had to come through. And, and I got to tell you, I've always been, you know, pretty tough on Tiger. Uh, I have. I've always expected a lot of him. And he's, he's always come through. He's, he all, I think it's the whole point. You always love to push him back in a corner and say that he's done. And he always wants to rise out of the ashes like a phoenix. So when you, we start talking about resilience, we start talking about tenacity, we start talking about grit. Well, you know, Tiger has all those things. And that's really what we want to actually sort of involve our juniors with. This whole notion of mental flexibility, mental tenacity, this notion of toughness, but also at the same time, building great competitive skills, being a good sport, understanding that failing's okay, because failing is the fertilizer of success. And I yep. guarantee you that yep. Tiger has failed a lot. And I think that's the whole thing little kids don't understand is that they are so naive that they think, wow, I'm supposed to win. And that's what happens. You, know, you have a young you know, golfer, they win a lot, and all of a sudden they get to another level. And I always talk about, oh, people say, well, Judy, you've been a big duck in a little pond for a long time. And they'll come to me and they'll say, what do you think about that? And I say, well, we are going into a larger body of water. I said, but I don't want you to lose your big duckness. Okay. I just want you to understand it's still just golf. We have a lot of players out there. There's you know, a lot of talent, but you haven't lost anything. You haven't become small. I don't, I don't want my players to be small. I want them to think big. I want them to believe big. I want them to have big time dreams. But at the same time, you know, I have a lot of parents go, well, I just don't want to, you know, set them up, you know, for failure. I'm going, well, I feel bad for you because anybody who's actually going after big time dreams has had some big time failure, but 
they persevered, they got up, they bounced up, they became resilient, and they got through it. And that, to me, is some of you know, the most important learning lessons that the game of golf provides for later on in life. You know, Dr. Bob, you mentioned about uh, the youth player. I've grown up in the game. My dad was a 53-year member of the PGA. And I remember when I was a kid, it was a little more imitation of swings. It was go play the game, P-L-A-Y. It was uh, how'd you play. It was uh, improving your play it related to score. And then I saw this shift over the years. So I started to, at my clubs, host uh, the old PGA of America. They had a junior series. I hosted AJGA events. I hosted state events, a lot of youth golfers. And I would see parents walking around with cameras dissecting every swing. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it went from play the game to yeah. get the ball in the hole to trying to get the pressure of a perfect swing. And if you, God forbid, you started three bogeys in a row, they wanted to get on their phone and call their coach. Yeah. And it's just, uh, I don't know your perspective over the years that you saw that going from the playing of the game now because of technology, um, everybody's caught up in the perfectness of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, years ago, uh, Terry Bradshaw, you know, the, the great commentator for Fox Sports, um, football player, great Pittsburgh Steeler, he said something about playing the game that I thought was really gospel at the time. He said, when my coach, Chuck Knoll, came in after a loss and he dressed us down and he said, we didn't care about winning because he said winning was the only thing. He said, we shouldn't be in here. You know, we, we, we played a great game. He said, when he stressed the need for winning or perfectionism for professionalism so much that Terry Bradshaw said this. He said, and it's so ironic, he said, he made our jobs seem like work. It wasn't fun anymore. And he said, no amount of Super Bowl rings or anything could make it the same or right again for me. And that was almost verbatim from Terry Bradshaw because I've used that statement a lot. And I find so many times that parents over their overzealousness to be almost like theater moms and theater dads, and we've got to have this just right. I mean, they interfere with the learning process, and the learning process is all about trial and error, performance, execution, failure, learning from the failure, learning from the success, enjoying just the camaraderie of just competition, and to to keep it fun. I mean, I've been a a director and a tour tournament starter. I've never told players, gentlemen or golfers, work away, please. (laughs) It was always always play away, please, all right? Play away from this spot. It was never about work. And I think what happens now is that the parents, because they're – and God bless them. They're trying to do the very best they can – but that's why we always need to continue to do sort of these parent junior golf education series to almost coach the parents of the junior golfers so that, you know, they're bringing them along and it's okay. And I'm not saying that, uh, you know, high scores and throwing clubs, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that they just need to understand it is a game. It's a very tough game. And the more that we actually try and stress for perfectionism and winning, we stifle the process. We stifle the enjoyment of the game because that's really what the joy is about in golf. I always talk about, hey, okay, you want fundamentals? Let's talk about fundamentals. F-U-N, fun. Fun is the first three letters of that word, and the middle goes, duh, mental, all right? (laughs) It's fun, duh, mental, all right? So that's the whole point. So you, we've got to understand from a, a parenting perspective and a coaching perspective, because I've always thought, you know, some of the best coaches that I've actually been around, and I've been around some of the best in the world, they knew when to coach and then when to be quiet and not overcoach and, yep. and just sort of let the learning process kind of take – take form, you know, and take shape by itself and, and mother nature and trial and error and just kind of doing it yourself, that discovery process, that's a huge part, you know, of this whole great game. So I, I understand really where you're coming from as well. 
It's a great yeah, I, point. Great point. I love, yeah, I love how you worded that. You know, I real quick, uh, I was up in Pinehurst a few years ago for the U.S. Kids World Championship at the height of Jordan Spieth. He was playing his best. And uh, I think it was John Brown Godwin, when they do their parent orientation, said to the assembled parents there, um, by the way, does anybody know how many times Jordan Spieth qualified for this tournament? And hands are going up, one, five, ten. And they looked around, gave it a dramatic pause, and they said he never qualified. He never made it to this so-called, you know, the world championships, the best of the best. So you just saw the look in the parents' face go, wow. So I, Jordan's had a pretty good career. I don't have to put all this pressure. It was, uh, it was a neat setting for that to, um, that, to see what that happened. You know, and the funny thing is, you know, being a former Division I college coach when I was at Virginia, my whole thing wasn't about let's go out and get the absolute best player we possibly could. I was there as an assistant coach, and my job behind my great friend, you know, Coach Mike Morgan, was to develop all these players, to get their minds right and get them to be as good as they could possibly be. And so when I hear parents say, well, it's not a really big tournament. There's really nobody in it. It's not a, the AJGA, and AJGA runs a great, great, you know, uh, tremendous tournaments. And there's a lot of great tournaments. But what I really love some of the people to understand is that college coaches, they are looking you know, at all different tournaments you know, the lower tier tournaments, different tournaments. And I always tell my athletes, I don't care if you're playing in the Peter Pan Inv Invitational or the Bonnie Bell Tournament, whatever it is, as long as it's competition, coaches will find you out. They really will because, you know, coaches, they recognize talent. But I always tell parents, it isn't just about golf talent. It's about the way, you know, uh, a young man or young woman carries himself, their sense yeah. of deportment, their yeah. character, their ability to bounce back. And they go, well, you know, this isn't their best tournament. Coaches really want to see, you know, players who aren't performing their best because they want to say, do I put this person at my training table and make them a part of our university family? Do mm -hmm. I really want this person to be part of us? The team cohesion, the team chemistry has to be there. And I think if more parents knew that, they would actually sort of ease off and say, listen, I want you to do well in the classroom. And I want you to, you know, be an upright, you know, great sports person. And I need you to be gracious. And I need you to take full advantage of this opportunity. These are the things I'd be telling, you know, parents right now. Because all these parents are saying, well, they've got to have the scores. they got to have the scores. Well, that becomes a catch-22, and it's like a dog trying to catch its tail. It never really happens. So, you know, if we can actually, again, educate, you know, these parents to say, hey, listen, here's really what college coaches are looking for. They're looking for great student athletes just not athletes. The student part has to come first because as a college coach, you're going to sit there and go, wow, do I have to really work to keep this boy or girl in school? All right. So that's why I always say a student athlete, you're a student first, athlete second. And if I can help parents help, you know, these young uh, scholar athletes with their time management, boy, that really, you know, carries over into a positive transfer in college because in college, if you are a big time golfer and go into class, there's very little time for any socialization. I mean, you better love what you're doing, love your school, love your teammates, because there's not much time for anything else. Because you got to get some sleep in there too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, Bob, that that's a good segue from from my last question for you, talking about a student in education. Obviously, you're at the top of your field in what you do, and I, and I think anybody that is at the top of the field in, in anything that they do, they have to stay sharp, they have to stay educated. So who are some of your, uh, some of your colleagues in, in this side of the golf industry that you may read, or who are some uh, areas you may look to continue your knowledge base? Yeah, every day, Brendan and Bob, every day. Uh, from some place, I don't care if it's behavioral psychology, educational psychology, medicine, science, uh, even motivational speakers like Anthony Robbins. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I draw on, you know, so many things. There are so many great books out there now. But I'll tell you what, I, I, I get more uh, substance from than almost anything else. It's these little cliches, these little bites of success 
you know, really what, what makes, you know, people really great. Like I just, I quoted Miles Davis. I thought, you know, for me, I could transfer that into really golf. He says, it takes a long time to learn how to play like yourself. Now, if people don't know Miles Davis, he revolutionized, you know, jazz, you know, with the trumpet and the horn section, three or four different decades. I mean, he was just remarkable. So he would say something, uh, you know, when you hear things like Socrates, when he says, you know, the only true knowledge is that we know nothing, meaning mm -hmm. that we're always trying to explore, we're always trying to learn and, and to get better. I got to tell you somebody who I just love. We've been colleagues for a long time. Uh, I, I love reading her stuff. It's Dr. Debbie Cruz uh, from Tempe, Arizona. And she's, you know, has, you know, this Opti International. Uh, she, she's just, you know, been a leading exorcist, exercise physiologist, sports psychologist for years. Uh, we've done a lot of things. I've worked with the Mayo Clinic with Dr. Bob Warren, who is the chief of neurosurgery. I mean, I love to read a lot of his stuff. We've done a lot of stuff with yips and focal dystonias, um, you know, but I mean, just, you know, the, the traditional, the regulars of people, obviously I'm with David Ledbetter, you know, I love, you know, reading all of David's, you know, stuff, but, you know, I read everybody's stuff, whether it's, you know, Jim McLean or uh, Peter Costas, you know, or uh, even, you know, the stuff that you guys are putting out there, you guys are putting some great stuff out there for junior golf. So I, I'm just like a sponge. I'm just soaking up, you know, from different places. There isn't just one fountain. And that's the whole point about golf. And I remember Bob Rotella and Linda Bunker saying to me one time, and it was the ultimate compliment to me. Uh, they had me by myself and I was a, a doctoral scholar and they looked at me and they said, winners, because we don't want you to do it the way that we do it. He goes, we don't expect you to be as good as us. We expect you to be greater. And, you know, that's sort of that wonderful legacy, that torch. Here was, I mean, you know, Dr. Bob Rotella, Dr. Linda Bunker, these were the two pundits in the field of sports psychology, motor learning, motor development. And they were telling me, hey, here is the torch. Here's what you need to do. And it isn't, hey, this is how we did it. Now you go, you know, have a blast, find out how you're going to do it. And that's really what I've done for these last 25, 30 years. And I, I look back now in my career, back in 1977, I wrote my first master's thesis on the effects anxiety and stress have upon modern golf competition. And I kind of laugh about that as I look at that title now, because anxiety and stress have always had you no know, factors on whether it was you no know, old golf, you know, performance or new golf performance. They're the same thing. The game is still about getting the ball from point A to point B to point C in the most efficient, effective, and economical manner possible. And that's why it's the greatest game ever invented. No one's really going to master it totally. You only get to touch it for a little while. That's what Byron Nelson told Tom Watson. He goes, you only get to touch it for a little while, but boy, when you touch it, it's an intoxicating feeling. Mm -hmm. Well, Bob, we really appreciate you coming on. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can catch up with you, whether it's a newsletter or Instagram or your website, or even come out and, and make an appointment with you? Well, I'll tell you what. Thank you, Brendan and Bob. That's, that's very nice. They can find me. I have, you know, several websites. One of them is drbobwinters, drbobwinters.com. You can go there. I have a new one. I am trademarked as theconfidencedoctor.com, the confidence doctor. You can also find me at davidledbetter.com. And uh, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Dr. Robert Winters, Dr. Bob Winters, uh, LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on all the social media channels and they can Google me and I'm always, you know, and I'll tell you what people say, you're, you only work with the top players. No, I'll tell you what, who I work with. I work with everyone. I work with everyone who wants to get better, who wants to learn and who's passionate about becoming the very best they can be. That's really who Dr. Bob Winters works with. And I knew that about you before we had you come on and I was really excited. I know Bob was too, to have you come on. So Thank you so much, Dr. Bob, and uh, we'll, we'll cross paths soon, I'm sure. Well, I hope so. I tell you what, this was fun. It goes by really fast, doesn't it, when you're having fun? Absolutely. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Thanks so much. We're going to have you back. Thank you. Good, good thoughts. Okay. Bye-bye now. 
So folks, for Love of the Links, you can check us out on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, you can check us out on YouTube. In fact, we're going to have the video portion of this conversation up on YouTube here pretty soon. Uh, the podcast portion will be on iHeartRadio, Pandora, any place basically you uh, tune in for your podcast. Bob, any last thoughts? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, people think about the 300-yard drive and trying to do the physically physicality of the perfect swing. And yeah, there's vast majority of people playing golf can't and won't ever do that, but they could be tour level mental side. They could be tour level, you know, take care of your body health with that. The, uh, one of our recent podcasts, uh, you know, excel at the game and be at a tour level putting, you know, we talked about that, you know, before is, you know, why couldn't anybody be tour level putting, you know, I the you get caught up in the big, big shot, the big swing. But uh, yeah, I love all that. Uh, Dr. Bob's awesome. Um, it's just, that's, that's areas you can improve your golf game tremendously. And that's an area I think more people are getting into. So um, yeah, it'd be great to have him come back to, uh, down the road. Um, he's just, I can listen to him all night. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's not by mistake that we've had the guests that we've had so far, we haven't even gotten into the, physical instruction side of the game yet because these aspects that we're we're looking at the health the mental uh these are areas that are you know kind of neglected by a large majority of amateur golfers so with that said though however our next uh next guest in coming weeks actually don't know if it'll be our next guest we have to reschedule with nick but it will be nick clearwater uh vice president of instruction with with golf tech and we'll definitely dive into all the technology of instruction. Uh, but we're looking to have some, some cool guests coming up in the coming weeks. Uh, Bob, appreciate your time, sir, as always. Always and a pleasure. We'll, we'll talk soon. Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks for listening to Love of the Links Golf Radio. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Our website is littlelinksers.com backslash love. You can email us at loveofthelinks at gmail.com.